Good morning again, church. I want to invite you to do me a favor. Grab a Bible. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 56 is where we'll spend the majority of our time in God's Word this morning. This is the last week, church, in what has been one of the most unique Christmas series that I have ever been a part of. Uh, really a month-long study at the unlikely family of Jesus. Now, if you're new to culture, real quickly. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew Jesus, the genealogy. And in this genealogy, we've seen over the last three weeks some stories and some people that we would think have no business being ancestors of the Messiah, but they are. And as we've looked at these stories, stories of brokenness, stories of dysfunction, even stories of sin, we've seen a single underlying theme that keeps coming up over and over and over again. The God of the Bible is a God of redemption. He's a God of redemption, and he redeems broken people, and he redeems broken stories, and he uses them for our good and for his glory. Beauty out of brokenness is the refrain that we keep coming back to. We saw that at the beginning of December with Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38, with Rahab in Joshua chapter 2, and then last week with the story of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, all stories of God bringing about redemption in the lives of broken and messy people. Now, finally, we are in Luke 1, and this morning, we are going to look at the story of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And let's be honest, after Tamar and Rahab, I'm sure there's probably a little bit of an internal collective sigh of relief. Like, we know Mary. Mary should be an easy one. But here's the thing, church, I'm convinced that over time we have become so familiar and I would even say so comfortable with the Christmas story that over time, unintentionally, we have sanitized it a little bit, softened it a little bit. I mean, think about it just for a second. The story recorded in Luke 1 and 2, the story that we all know is the story of an insignificant small town teenage girl giving birth in a barn with no epidural, and yet we sing songs like Silent Night. We just had a baby three months ago. We know there was nothing silent about that first night. Man, I shouldn't say we. Amy had a baby three months ago. I always get in trouble when I say we had a baby. On top of it all, church, Mary gave birth out of wedlock. Her and Joseph, they weren't married when Jesus was conceived, which means that the miraculous virgin birth was shrouded by scandal, a scandal that would follow Jesus into adulthood. In John 8, 41, the Pharisees actually accuse Jesus of being born out of sexual immorality because they didn't know who his father was. I mean, that means that on that first Christmas, there was no one singing, what child is this? People were singing, whose child is this? They didn't know. I mean, here's my point. Luke 1 is not a Hallmark Christmas card. This story isn't familiar and safe for us. It wasn't picturesque or perfect. What I want us to see this morning is that this story was messy. But all throughout the Bible... 
God chooses to enter into the mess and bring about mercy. All throughout the Bible, God chooses insignificant, unimportant, and imperfect people to accomplish his purposes. He chooses the weak, the downcast. God chooses the ones that society looks down on, and he chooses them for a particular reason, so that all people might see him for all that he is, the all-good, all-satisfying God of redemption, the God who redeems stories. He's redeemed mine. And I know if we were to go around the room this morning, he's redeemed many of ours. And if you're here this morning and you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, he can redeem yours. And so here's what I want you to know at the very outset of our time, Coastal. There are no insignificant people in God's story. God has created everyone in this room God has created you for a purpose. Whether you realize it or not yet, we were created to magnify him, to fear him with reverence and awe, and to enjoy him, to find our truest satisfaction in all that he is forever and ever. And we're gonna see this morning that Mary recognizes this and that Mary embraces this. And so here's how I want to structure our time. We're going to read God's word together, beginning first with verses 26 through 45. And I'm going to set some context for us, and then we'll read 10 more verses, which record Mary's song of praise, which, if you know your Bible, is one of the most beautiful prayers in all of scriptures. It's really a response to the work of God in Mary's life. And from this prayer, I'm going to pull out three observations for the church today. You'll have these in your notes. So let's dive in, beginning in Luke 1, 26. This is the word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born shall be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. This was John the Baptist. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord." 
Let me pray for us, church. Father, we approach your word this morning with humility. God, I know that myself included, we've heard this story. We've read this text. We've probably been in a lot of Christmas services. But Lord God, we know that your word is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. We know, God, that your word accomplishes the purposes for which you have set it forth. We know, God, that your word is not bound. And so I pray that your word would accomplish your purposes in your people today, that you would bring conviction and comfort encouragement and joy as we study your word and as we marvel at Christ. As always, we pray, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Amen. Amen. All right, church, I know we're familiar with the details here, so I'm going to go quick. Our passage today, it opens with God sending an angel to visit Mary. Verse 27 tells us she was betrothed to a man named Joseph, which basically means she was engaged, but not yet married. It's very likely that Mary and Joseph's parents were the ones that arranged the marriage. In the first century, it was common for most women to have husbands selected for them by the time they were teenagers. So here's Here's what I want us to understand. Mary was probably between the ages of 13 and 17 when Luke's gospel opens. And Gabriel has a message for her. We just read it. Despite being a virgin, Mary is going to conceive and bear a child named Jesus, which in Hebrew means God saves. He then tells Mary five important things about this miracle baby named Jesus. And so look back at me at verses 32 and 33. Gabriel tells her five things. First, Jesus will be great. Second, he'll be called the son of the most high. This distinction sets Jesus apart from all others. Anyone who's ever been born and makes it clear that Jesus will be God's own son. Third, God will give Jesus the throne of his father, David. We saw this last week. God promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that he would always have a son on the throne. Jesus would be the fulfillment of that promise. This is confirmed by the fourth thing that Gabriel shares. Jesus will reign over the house of Jacob, over the house of Israel. And fifth, his kingdom will have no end. It will endure. It will go go on forever and ever. And so Gabriel's making it clear to Mary here in Luke 1 that this is no ordinary baby. That this baby brought about by a miracle would be the messianic son of God who would rule and reign over his people forever. He would be the offspring that would crush the head of the serpent. He would be the one to die for the sin of his people, to conquer death and the grave. Thousands of years of patience and prophecy have been leading up to this moment, the moment when the radiance of the glory of God, the one through whom all things were created, would wrap himself in flesh and come to dwell with mankind. It's absolutely incredible. Now, imagine being an unmarried 15-year-old girl and hearing that God's going to do this through you. Be almost overwhelming. And yet Mary's response is just as incredible. Look at verse 38. Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And this is a heart posture, church, of total submission 
to both the will of God and the word of God because she knows that what God is doing will affect her life. She knows that the whispers of scandal will come. She doesn't know her fiance's reaction, but she knows above all that she is a servant of the Lord, that Mary's purpose is to glorify God. She exists to please God and God alone. And in this, there's so much for us to learn from and emulate in Mary, an insignificant girl at an insignificant age from an insignificant town sets for us in Luke 1 a model of grace and humility. And in verses 46 through 55, we get some precious insight into how she's reacting how she's processing this work of God in her life. She does this in a prayer of praise commonly called the Magnificent. So let's read it, and then we'll hit these three observations beginning in verse 46. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Verse 56, and Mary remained with her, Elizabeth, for about three months and then returned to her home. So God is working mightily through Mary, changing her life, and Mary responds with God-centered worship. Praising God for all he is and all and so I want to pull out three lessons, three observations that we can learn from Mary and from this prayer. There are many more. Keep it at three this morning. Observation number one, you have this in your notes. God created us to magnify him. God has created us to magnify him. We see this in verse 46. And we actually already sang it this morning. My soul magnifies the Lord. My Rejoices in God my Savior. Mary's soul magnifies the Lord, and in so doing, she sets for us both an example and reveals a theological truth. Our souls, everyone in this room, we were created to magnify and rejoice in God. Now, let me define my terms because there are a couple different ways we can magnify something. There are, or there's microscope magnifying and there's telescope magnifying. When we magnify something with a microscope, think like seventh grade biology. We make something smaller look bigger than it really is. But when we magnify something with a telescope, we make a big thing look as big as it really is. And as Christians, we're called and created to be telescope magnifiers, which means, church, that in everything we do, we do it to display to others the supreme worth and value of a big God. And if you're a follower of Christ in the room this morning, this is why God has saved you, to magnify him and to make him known. 1 Peter chapter 2 sends this home for us. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession. This is who you are if you're in Christ this morning. God has chosen you. God has ordained you to a royal priesthood. He's made you a holy nation. You are God's special possession. Now, why? Why did God do this? That you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are God's people, church, so that we might proclaim his excellencies, so that we might magnify him and reflect him to the watching world around us. John Piper put it this way, the whole duty of the Christian can be summed up in this, feel, think, and act in a way that will make God look as great as he really is. This is why God has created us, church, to magnify and display his greatness to the world so that all might see his glory. Now, here's the sticking point. For a lot of people, the idea of a God who is after his own glory can be, I think, a tough pill to swallow. This is actually the reason why Oprah Winfrey says she's not a Christian. I've heard her giving interviews before saying that she can't believe in a God who wants to glorify himself. It seems selfish to her. But I want to show us that far from being selfish, God's pursuit of his own glory, God's desire for his own magnification in the lives of his people is actually selfless and a really good thing for us. And so this is the case for two reasons. One philosophical, one practical. Number one, why is it good that God glorifies himself? Let me tell you, we glorify that which is more glorious than us. And the Bible is clear. God is the most glorious being in the entire universe, the only one worthy of glory. So track with me here. If God glorified someone else or something else, then God would no longer be the most glorious being, the focal point of everything. And again, it's clear that he is. So who would we rather him glorify? Certainly not us. No, God glorifies himself because he's God the only one worthy of total glory. The second reason why it's a good thing that God is after his own glory, and this is a practical one, church, it proves that God loves us. That God's pursuit of his own glory proves that God loves you. That he loves you with an overwhelming, selfless, incredible kind of love. Think about it. When you love someone, you want the best for them. You want their best. And God works the same way. God is the best thing. So when God looks at us out of love, he wants the best thing for us, which is himself, not more of ourselves. The last thing that Jesus prayed for his people before he went to the cross was in John 17. He asked God to show us his glory, knowing that God's glory was the very best thing that any of us could ever experience. I want us to see this, church, because this gives us some insight into eternity. Heaven one day will not be a house of mirrors where we spend forever staring at glorified versions of ourselves. No, because God loves us, heaven will be this everlasting experience of beholding the greatness of the glory of God. And it's that way because God loves us. And he knows that he himself is the very best thing we will ever experience. We were created to magnify and glorify him now and magnify and glorify him forever. And look what this realization does for Mary. Second half of verse 46. My spirit 
rejoices. My spirit takes joy in God, my Savior. I want us to see this. When we magnify God, as we were created to do, it leads us to something. It leads us to rejoicing. It leads us to joy because we look beyond the inadequacy of our finite selves and we live for the one who is infinite, infinitely more glorious. And that brings us joy. So here's the question for us this morning. A little self-reflection time. Who or what are you magnifying right now? What are you magnifying? I want us to see this. It's not a question, church, of if we are magnifying something. It's a question of what we are magnifying. I found that the end of the year is usually a pretty good time for some self-reflection. So really think on that for a moment. I mean, if you were to ask the person who knows you best, what do I magnify? What do I reflect? What's the one thing that I care about, that I think about, that I speak about more than anything else? What would they say? I mean, I could list for us this morning all the different things that we might magnify, career or beauty or relationships, but all of these things just boil down to one thing, leaving us with two options. In this life, we will either magnify ourselves or we will magnify our God. And at the end of the day, at the end of our lives, one will leave us empty and one will leave us rejoicing. And a 15-year-old girl in Galilee realized that the purpose of her life was to magnify her maker and it led her to rejoicing. May the same be said of us, Coastal. All right, observation number two. God has mercy on those who fear him. So not only has God created us to magnify him, but God has mercy on those who fear him. Look with me at verses 49 and 50. Mary prays, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And so we've established this morning that God is the most glorious being in the universe. And Mary confirms that in verse 49. She calls God both mighty and holy. Then in verse 50, she realizes that while being holy, God is also merciful, granting mercy to those who fear him. So God is both mighty and merciful. And the connection between the two is fear. The text says it. God's mercy is for those who fear him. Now, if you're new to the church this morning or you're just checking out Christianity, you might be wondering, why fear? Why fear? It doesn't seem very Christian. Why is fear the conduit between holiness and mercy? Let me explain. When the Bible calls God holy, here's what it's saying. God is totally set apart, unique and perfect. We've covered this already. There's no one like God. God alone is without sin. And because righteousness and justice are wrapped up in his holiness, God can't tolerate sin. Think about it. If God didn't care about sin, church, if it didn't bother him, if he just tolerated sin, then God would no longer be just. And if he were no longer just, then he wouldn't be holy, but he is. Now, this is actually a problem for us. Anyone know why it's a problem? It's a problem because we sin. I sin. We sin every day. There's not a single person in this room 
who's without sin, which means that when we are held up against the perfection and holiness and righteousness of God, we fall short. And because God cannot tolerate sin in our sinful state, church, God cannot tolerate us, which means that we can't ever live in his presence. We can't ever taste that glory or experience that joy that we just talked about. Now, I know it's Christmas. I know it's a joyful time of year. I want to be real direct here. This realization that God is holy and that we are not should cause us to fear. It really should cause us to fear, to be in a place where we understand both the holiness of God and the weight of our own sin is a terrifying place to be because we realize unless God has mercy on us and intervenes, then we're stuck in our sin. And therefore, God can't tolerate us. And therefore, we're separated from his presence forever. That's bad news, scary, fearsome news for us this morning. But get this, church. Here's the good news. I would even say the best news that any of us will ever hear. God, in his mercy, without compromising his holiness and his justice, has made a way for our sin to be forgiven. And that's actually why we'll celebrate Christmas tomorrow. God has sent his son, Jesus, born of a virgin to live a perfect life and to die a death on the cross that we deserved. On the cross, Jesus took the full weight of the punishment of my sin and of your sin, satisfying the perfect righteousness and justice of God. And then Jesus rose back to life. And in doing so, he turned our fear of punishment into reverence and awe of mercy. But listen, to obtain that mercy in full fear of the Lord, we have to trust in Christ. We have to trust in Jesus to avail ourselves of the mercy that he offers. Jesus Christ is the only way we can be forgiven of our sin. And listen, the Bible makes it clear, there will come a day when all of us in this room will stand before the living God of the universe and our lives will be laid bare. And on that day, our only hope in the world is Jesus Christ in fear and trembling to say, God, the only way you're letting me into heaven is because of Jesus, because Jesus purchased mercy, because Jesus died for my sin, because Jesus shed his blood on the cross. And when we do that, when we cast ourselves in full fear on the mercy of Jesus, he becomes our redemption, he becomes our everything, the one who once and for all saves us from our sin. It's the best news in the world, church, that that mercy is accessible to us today. It's good news, but the good news doesn't stop there. Jesus didn't just come that first Christmas to make a way for our sin to be forgiven. I think oftentimes we boil it down to that and then leave it there. He didn't stop there. Jesus came to change our lives give us a new way to live. Observation number three, God satisfies those who come to him. God satisfies those who come to him. Verse 53, the last thing that I'll pull from Mary's prayer this morning. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has filled the hungry with good things. Listen, I said at the beginning of our time today that God is a God of redemption that there's no story too insignificant or messy or broken for him to redeem and to make beautiful. But here's what I want us to see now as we get ready to close. God has not only redeemed us from something, 
Again, there's more to it. God has redeemed us for something. We've been singing the song, Manger Throne, all month. We just sang it this morning. I love that line that we sang that says, he died for our redemption and he rose so we could live. Listen, church, the end goal of both Christmas and the cross was not just to get us off the hook for our sin. It was to create a new way for us to live, a way for God to fill the hungry with good things. In John chapter 10, Jesus promises abundant life for those who know him, not life that is purposeless and dry, life that's going through the motions, but one that is alive and fully alive, one that is vibrant, full of purpose and joy. So understand this, Christians, we were created not just to look at Jesus as our get-out-of-jail-free card or the one that we think about or pay tribute to every once in a while, but as the Lord of our lives and the satisfier of our souls, He's so much more than the one who redeems us from our sin. He's the one that offers us abundant life, the one we live for and magnify, the well that will never run dry and the source of every good thing we could ever have. Christ for the Christian is everything. Christ is our lives and God intended him to be that way. And so here's what I want us to see, to look at him as anything less is to miss the point of our redemption. We were redeemed from sin and for Christ to enjoy and worship and dwell with him forever and ever. And so if you're here this morning and you profess Christ, but you've been running after other things to satisfy and fulfill your soul, then from the bottom of my heart, use today to turn back I'll be real with you. Your marriage was not created to satisfy your soul. Your kids were not created to satisfy your soul. Your career was not created to bring you fulfillment. Thinking about retirement one day is not the end goal. You were created with a purpose. We saw this in point number one, to magnify the risen Christ, to magnify Jesus. And the Bible makes it clear, cover to cover, Jesus is the only one that can truly satisfy our souls. I love Psalm 4, 7. It says that you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. We can look at the prosperity of the world, church, and say, I still choose Jesus because Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. He is unique. He is born. And we celebrate and we praise him and we worship him for it. So here's how I want to close our time this morning. I came across a quote this week in a commentary that God used to stir my affections, to raise my affections for Christ. And so I just want to read it. I'm going to read it and we're going to pray and we're going to light candles and we're going to sing and go out of here this morning praising the Jesus who was born. We see this morning that Mary realized her life had purpose and that Mary's purpose was not to glorify herself, it was to glorify Jesus. I think for all of our lives, the same is true. And so let me read this and we'll stand and sing. Someone has said that he came from the bosom of the father to the bosom of a woman. He put on humanity that we might put on divinity. He became son of man that we might become sons of God. He was born contrary to the laws of nature, lived in poverty, was reared in obscurity, and only once crossed the boundary of the land in which he was born, and that in his childhood. He had no wealth or influence and had neither training nor education in the world's schools. 
His relatives were inconspicuous and uninfluential. In infancy, he startled a king. In boyhood, he puzzled the learned doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature. He walked upon the billows and hushed the seas asleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book, yet all the libraries of the country could not hold all of the books about him. He never wrote a song, yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all songwriters together. He never founded a college, yet all schools together cannot boast of as many students as he has. He never practiced medicine. It has healed more broken hearts than the doctors have healed broken bodies. This Jesus Christ is the star of astronomy, the rock of geology, the lion and the lamb of zoology, the harmonizer of all discords and the healer of all diseases. And throughout history, great men have come and gone, yet he lives on. Herod could not kill him. Satan could not seduce him. Death could not destroy him. And the grave could could not hold him. This is our Christ. And so church, this morning, my only hope for us is that we as a church body would feast on Christ, that we would marvel at Christ as not only our redemption, but the satisfier of our souls. And so if you're here this morning and you've been running after other things and you know it, we're gonna have just two minutes where you can come to the Lord Jesus and say, God, I want more of you. I want more of you. I know that I'm not magnifying you with my life right now, and I want to change that this morning. Maybe you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. You hear about this Jesus, and it seems intense or foreign to you. Know this, God loves you with an unrelenting, all-powerful, selfless kind of love. That's why we're here this morning. That's why we celebrate Jesus, because Jesus is God's proof of his love for you. If you ever doubt with God, whether or not God loves you, look at the cross, look at the cradle. The incarnate word is proof of the love of God. Amen. if you're here and you're in Christ this morning, my hope is that we would do that self-reflection and that we would say, Jesus, is there something else that I'm running to? Something else that I'm looking to for satisfaction and fulfillment? Because the presents under the tree tomorrow are not going to satisfy in the way that Christ can. The promotion's not going to satisfy in the way Christ can. Nothing will satisfy the way Christ can. So let's do this. I want to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll light candles and we'll go out of here singing and rejoicing and praising the magnificent God of Mary. Father, we praise you this morning and we thank you for sending us your very best gift, Jesus Christ. It's all I have to offer these people this morning, God. It's just Jesus. It's not me. It's not the church. It's just Jesus. Jesus changes lives. Jesus changes eternities. Jesus changes hearts. You change mine, Jesus. And I know that you can change hearts all over this room. And so God, I pray first for the one in here who's not a Christian. I pray that they would know the gospel. Gospel just means good news, that Jesus is God. Jesus died on the cross for their sin and that Jesus bodily rose from the dead. And that if we repent of our sin, believe in the message of the gospel and receive Christ, then we can be saved, redeemed, not just from the penalty of our sin, but redeemed to live a new life. I pray God that that person would not leave here this morning without coming to talk to me, someone on our team, about how they can find that life in Jesus. I pray for the Christians in the room this morning, those that 
If they were honest, have drifted. If they were honest, the world has been tugging at their hearts. God, I pray a bold prayer for those Christians. I pray that you would not let us be consumed or attracted by the trinkets of this world, but that you would give us a holy longing for the treasures of heaven. God, I pray that you would create heavenly-minded Christians in this space. Heavenly-minded Christians. We want to come to you, Jesus, for everything, for abundant life and for eternal life forever. And so, God, I pray even now as we light candles and we sing, we celebrate, even tomorrow and this week, God, I pray you, Jesus, would captivate our hearts all across this room in fresh ways. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.